And so I invite you in this moment to take a, just take a moment and take a deep breath. Relax. Relax into your chair. Relax wherever you are. And in that relaxation, I invite you, if you feel so inclined and it feels comfortable for you, to place both feet on the floor for a moment, to ground your energy into this beautiful earth. Grounding and bringing our energy not only into our heads, but also into our hearts and to the core of our being, into all three of our brains, not just the intellect, but the heart brain and the brain of our, our gut, our core. And so as we move our energy down, and I move my energy down with you as well, what I know in this moment is there is one life, one power, one presence, one infinite divine intelligence that moves in and through and as each and every one of us. And as they say that electricity is everywhere, God's presence is everywhere, but only, just like electricity, if we use it. And so in this moment, as I invite this awareness and this recognition and this unification with that one power and that one presence on behalf of myself and everyone here, I direct it to inform me, to support me, and to resource me in the next awareness, experience. What is mine to do in this moment? What is mine to carry forward? What is my gift upon this planet at this time? And what is restricting my awareness and my clarity around that? And so I put down the next, the next restriction, the next obstacle to living a more fully orbed, wholehearted, and joyful life. To stand on this planet in joy and appreciation and play and celebration. To dance our dance, sing our song, and live our life fully and completely. To live a fulfilled life. And all of the obstacles that are in the way of that continue to be dissolved in my experience and yours. As we continue to activate and use and direct this infinite intelligence, this power for good that is awaiting our next thought and responding in a yes. For this I give thanks. I give thanks for this beautiful day, for music, for words, for fellowship, for the vibration of the Most High that we, we circulate and spend time together in, in this moment. I know that my life is blessed as a result of this day. This day is the best day of my life. And I know that the infinite is responding in every good way to make it so. And for this I give thanks and invite you to say with me, and so it is. Thank you, ladies. First time we did that song today, there was no musicians because Brown is on his honeymoon. And so we did it a cappella, which is Italian, I was told at the break for, where the hell did the musicians go? <laughs> I always wonder what that meant. Now I know. All right. So this, this month, uh, we're, we're looking at, uh, last, last week I talked about depression a great deal, and then about... Um, some of the, the strategies around that because uh, depression is, is so prevalent in our, in our culture. 25% of, of the age range from 15 to 25 will experience depression and as they move forward in life, they project that, that statistic as they move into the, their uh, 50s and 60s to grow to beyond 50% of the population. So what's up with this? Because we've never known more, we've never had more opportunities, we've never had more consciousness on the planet and awareness. And so what are the pitfalls and why, why has this happened? And so if you want to hear more of that, uh, it'll be on the, our website, on the podcast uh, for your consumption. Um, but what I wanted to do is, is build on that and, and, and uh, talk a bit about courage in a culture of fear today 
And I'm going to call up the first slide, which is a picture of Brene Brown, who inspired this. And I love her work. She's a woman that, she started out, as she said, being a, a shame researcher. So she would go to places and they'd say, well, we'd like to have you as a keynote speaker, but what do you speak about? And she'd say, shame. And they'd say, well, we'll look for somebody else to speak then. Because nobody wants to hear about shame. Nobody wants to do that. You know, no one wants to investigate this. But what has happened for her over time in her research is she's developed this awareness and this proficiency and this commitment to shifting the propensity for us to live in shame uh, and to, to move ourselves out of that more effectively and more productively. And what has happened is a research has gone from a, a shame researcher to someone that speaks about wholeheartedness and joy, which for me is like, yeah, because that's what Holmes, Dr. Ernest Holmes, our founder, talked about, and many of the great teachers on the planet uh, currently and in the past have talked about, to live a fulfilled life, to live a life of health and vibrancy, and to, and to share our gifts and so when things come along in our lives to restrict that, then it's an opportunity to either look at that or to continue to live in that way. So I, I love her. And, and practicing courage in a culture of fear comes from this chapter in the book, which is exactly that, practicing courage in a culture of fear. Because for us to go out in the world and live some of these principles is, is very much in opposition to what the status quo is. And it takes courage to do that. Courage is defined as the ability and willingness. So we all have this ability. And the reason, and, and, and if we're feeling fear about it, it's exactly what it's about because you wouldn't have courage without a sense of fear or the unknown. And the willingness is such a potent place to, to live from, the willingness, because we're not in it alone. The next knowing, the next pathway, the next doorway to walk through will become clear as we partner with spirit. But as I said in my opening prayer, it's available, but if we don't activate it, if we don't call it forth and use it, it's just, it's once again, it's just this dormant possibility. The ability and willingness to confront fear, pain, danger, uncertainty, or intimidation. So I've had an experience with all of those. And sometimes I have an experience with all of those on the same day. But that's the human condition. And what I need, what I, what I welcome into my life is more awareness and more uh, tools in my toolbox, more methods that allow me to not spin into that and make that the, my status quo. And it's the, it's the willingness to do the work the inquiry and the investigation. So the next slide says our first order of business is to love ourselves. And there's a little, little fellow there and he probably doesn't even know that's, some, that's not him. You know, it's somebody else that he's saying hi to. But there are, there are ways to establish this as practices in our lives. And I think that when we live from this idea of pain, danger, uncertainty, and intimidation or depression... Uh, it's not what we were. It's not how we're wired to operate. And so, when we can have more insight and awarenesses, and when we can work with ourselves more effectively, I think it's much more to our advantage and to the world's advantage, because we all have gifts and talents to share. And when we're, we're spinning in that that status quo of of um, not good enough, uh, it limits that capacity. So on the next slide, it's how we measure modern culture. These are some of the measurements, but they're huge in terms of how we value ourselves and how we move upon this planet. Number one is body image. As a woman, especially in this culture, you cannot open a, a magazine, you cannot watch a television program and be informed at a subliminal or a very obvious conscious level of what you should look like or what, what is value in that. And so there's a lot of energy that goes into this, this whole idea around body image. I want to share with you a, a story. Brene Brown was interviewing um, uh, various um, women, primarily, about 
their journey. And she had two women that had come into her research that she interviewed back to back, and both of them had struggled with weight. And it's a very short little story, so I'll, I, uh, I'll read it quickly, but I think it's so compelling, two examples of perception and how um, d- different ways to manage this. So the first woman came in, had great contempt. This is one of the ladies that had lost the weight, had great contempt for the person she used to be. And she told me, I was fat and disgusting. I can't believe I ever looked like that. And she went on to tell me how much she disliked overweight women. She told me that her mother was very slim and was constantly on her about her weight. And she said that she had two daughters and she watches everything they eat. She said that her oldest daughter, who was seven at the time of the interview, was already on a diet. And she told me that it was better that she told her daughter that she was looking fat rather than her school peers. I sensed this woman, despite having lost weight, still had a great amount of shame attached to her weight issues. She appeared more rooted in shame than grounded in self-acceptance. So the next woman came in and she interviewed her. She said, the second told me that she had struggled with weight for 25 years. She said she was an overweight child and didn't get into shape until she, was, she turned 30. And when I asked her how she felt when she thought back to her life when she was overweight, she said, well, it's just part of who I am. I got married and I had children during that period of time. I lost my mom during my 20s. Just like everybody else, I had good times and I had bad times. She said that her daughter and son were too young to really remember her being heavy, so when they see old movies and pictures, they sometimes make comments. And she said, I explained that it hurts my feelings when they make fun of my old pictures. I also use that as an example of why they shouldn't judge people based on how they look. They love me and and they think I'm a great mom, and I told them that if all you saw was a fat woman, you'd miss all the good stuff. They have become very sensitive about this issue with their friends. This woman said she had great power and freedom about her appearance. She said she had a huge support system of friends and family. And she seemed securely securely grounded in self-acceptance. I would say one of the the interesting things is that when we stay angry at ourselves and others and we hold judgment, as you mentioned in the the second uh, example of this, talking about the, the, the support she had around her. Because when we're vulnerable, see, and there's a vulnerability in being able to, to be, speak honestly with our feelings with our children, which really models quite a powerful and, and, and sends a message. Because kids don't do what you tell them. They, they, they do what they see. And so it's really about how we manage our, our wherever you are in your journey. But to, to, to equate self-value with how you physically look is such a small little and if, you want to, and, and if you'd like to change that, then, you, then you, you, you work about it progressively with yourself, but that's your choice. But not to, not to put our, our self-value on this idea of body image. Brene Brown says when we, when we begin to blame and hate our bodies for failing to live up to our expectations, we start splitting ourselves in parts and move away from our wholeness, our authentic selves. So anytime we're in a conversation with ourselves that starts to j- blame and shame ourselves for whatever we move, out of, we move into separation. We move out of wholeness. We move out of connection. It's not possible to do both. So we get to decide. You know, I, I like to say, just throw your hands up in the air and declare victory right where you are and move forward. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> nice. I like that. Thank you. There's a mythology. The second one. Everything should be fun, fast, and easy. Well, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to work with a practitioner. I'm going to, hey, almost a practitioner over there, Amy. I told Amy at the first service that I could help her get her practitioner license quicker if she wanted to move up to Edmonton. I know that that could happen. So, we're working on it. We're working on it. Yep. 
Now I'm treating for that fast train that you can get from Calgary to Edmonton in one hour, and it'll drop her off right here. You could go back and forth between services. Do both. Look at that. Double your income. Wouldn't that be great? And look at the train miles she'd have. For There's nothing but great things happening here. Something wonderful is happening. But anyway, fun, fast, and easy. This whole idea that if it's not fun and it's not fast and it's not easy, it's not worthwhile. When in fact, if you look at the, if you look at the planet, if you look at someone that is really invested in their, in their own spiritual deepening, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not, it's, it, despite what the secret will tell you in the movie, it is not fun, fast, and easy. It's a journey and it's a challenge. And so it's, it's the commitment for the long haul, despite sometimes not measuring up or not meeting the ideas of perfection. Perfection is, is, perfection is already a given. There's a perfection that lives in all of us. When we talk about perfect, whole, and complete, it's recognizing what is. But we put layer upon layer, or we can put layer upon layer of restrictions on that. And so we can lift those, those layers, but it typically takes time. And our part to do is to show up and live our lives and try things, and then, wow, that doesn't work. Why isn't that working in my life? Well, maybe there's something for me to know or do or be differently about this and to grow into that. Fun, fast, and easy. The, myth, the, the, the mythology of that. It's very interesting with, with Brene Brown in, the, in this chapter. She talks about uh, falling in love with the movie Flashdance. Remember Jennifer Beale in Flashdance? And she goes into audition and she's got the, the leggings on and the tights. And, the, and, and, you know, so she had this image. She was, you know, she longed to be Jennifer Beale. So she went and got a permanent and she bought the leg warmers and the tights and everything. She shows up to see her pals and everybody's dressed the same and everybody's got the same perm because they all wanted to be Jennifer Beale, because there's this amazing, and it's so sexy, because she's a welder during the day, and she's a dancer at night, and I mean, it's just like this romantic, and it's perfection, and then she found out that it took four stunt doubles for her to pull off that dance scene when she auditioned for the dance school, it took a professional gymnast, it took a professional ballet performer, and it took some other body double for her, but anyway, the point is, when we allow that to be our, 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 our uh, idea of the ideal and perfection, how many of us can live up to that? You know? And so how many of us live quieter lives that can be so rich and wonderful, not based on the opinion of other people, not based on achievement out there? Another, another thing that's very popular, as you see up on the screen, is that, and what motivated this is working too hard for perfection brings shame because you never, you never feel like you've perfected it. So perfection in that context just becomes a trigger for shame. And this idea that exhaustion, if I'm exhausted and working too hard, then I have worth. Or or exhaustion is my status symbol. You know, well, they're they're too busy for anything. They're always working. All those things. You know, I was was, uh, domesticated like that. Just the family, all we did was work and work and work. And it took me years and years and years to unravel that. You know, still one of my triggers here, when things start to get really stressful, you'll see me pull out my carpenter tools and look for something to cut in half and nail back together. <laughs> I mean, it is. It's like, hmm, this is getting a little overwhelming. I think I'll distract myself with something that I can do. You know, I feel like I'm doing something. But it's fascinating to watch. And so that's, part of, that's been part of my journey. That's part of my, my uh, domestication. So the, the guideposts around some of these things. Next slide is is that one of the things we talked about last week around depression, one of the uh, antidotes is sleep. Studies show now that if you have two nights of sleep with less than seven hours, in two nights you're sleep deprived. 
And so when we're aware of that, then how can we go about the business? Because, you know, if, if, we're, if we're working in exhaustion and just going and going and going, then why would I want to sleep? Because how I find value in myself is by being tired all the time, being exhausted. Oh, I can't do that. I'm so busy. <gasps> Couldn't possible. I don't even have time to sleep. I pulled an all-nighter. Anybody ever done that? Boy, I tried that once. Whew. Never again. But, but anyway, but that's an idea that is very popular. Cultivating calm. So when we come together, and we worked a lot on this with our, our, our leadership work with uh, Eileen Flanagan, who was here a few weeks ago to facilitate. And she had us do a lot of work around grounding our bodies, understanding we have three brains and that when we're, energy's all up in our head, it's typically negative. It's usually saying danger, 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 where most people live. So if you look out at the world, I mean, look at the Ebola scare right now. And I'm not saying it's not, but I mean, it's just like all over the news and it's like, holy moly. And I think there's part of us in the culture that just, it's titillating. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And when I, what in fact is, you know, um, I just know I'm always in the right place at the right time with the right people. Based on my consciousness. And if I, con- if I carry with me a consciousness that everything that blows through I get, cold and flu season, oh boy, here we go. Or whatever it may be, if I establish that in my thinking, then I will bring something to support that into my life. And I'm, and I'm not saying it's, you know, but... but it's just fascinating to watch all, the, the, all the, the hysteria and the fear that goes in because that's a culture of fear. So cultivating calm is such a powerful tool to put the energy down into our feet wherever we are and ground ourselves into the earth and bring our energy fully into all three brains, the mind, the heart, and the core. And, and to just live there. She talks about it, on, uh, Brene Brown writes about it here. She, she calls it grounding. She said, grounding gives us a stability to, we need to reach out and examine who we are and who we want to be. Because when we're home with ourselves, when we're, when we're not in the, all up in the head, but we're, we're, you know, we're fully present with ourselves, we get a chance to ask the questions. See, we have free will. But then we have to also have the opportunity to live the consequences. And so what choices are you making today? What are you building in your consciousness? What are you nurturing in your consciousness? And we all do that through thought, through a rep- repetitive thought pattern of nurturing. The more grounded we are, the less we feel compelled to defend our decisions and protect ourselves. We can look at ourselves with compassion rather than self-loathing. Self-loathing is not a spiritual practice. Grounding also prevents us from chasing acceptance and, and belonging by attempting to become whatever people need us to be. I had a friend that went to medical school, not because he wanted to go to medical school, because his dad told him by the time he was two years old, he's going to be a doctor. And he's a successful doctor right now. I'd say he's got some anger issues and he's probably not real happy, but he fulfilled his dad's prophecy because he loved his dad. But the point is, is that when we, can, when we can come home to ourselves and presence ourselves, the conversation becomes more interesting. And the self-loathing, that voice quiets, that's the voice of the head. And the next one, the next point up there is play. And play is such a huge, huge tool. And Brene Brown talks about this. Uh, last week when we were talking about depression, I didn't, I didn't realize, and I, I dove into this week's uh, um, study of this, and she talked about the influence play has in our lives. And for many of us, it feels like play is a waste of time. It's not productive. It's not taking us anywhere. 
And then she started talking about a researcher by the name of Stuart Brown, and I'm going to show you a short video in a moment. But Stuart Brown was brought in, I don't know if you're old enough or remember, but uh, years ago, a man went up in a tower at the University of Texas and, and with a high-powered rifle started shooting people, which was sort of the precursor to what, some of what we see today on the planet, where people will take weapons and they'll, and they'll uh, attempt to create as much carnage as they possibly can. But when it happened, um, Governor John Conley was the governor of Texas, and he said, we need to figure out what's going on here. So he brought in a, a variety of different modalities to study. He said, we will spare no expenses, must never happen again. And so they brought Stuart Brown in, and the reason they brought Stuart Brown is because he was a, he was a researcher and an expert on violence. And they brought him in, and he started looking at it, and they, they were looking for a commonality because they'd had other incidences of this, and, and now they've tied it in with some of the things that have been happening most recently. But what they found about Charles Whitman, the shooter, was that as a young boy, he was never allowed to play. It was never allowed in his family. And one of the, the, the determining factors for this behavior, not the only one, but one of the common threads in all of the, this random violence that gets acted out are young men, primarily it's young men, that were never allowed to play. And so, Stuart Brown went from being a violence researcher, now his expertise is in play. And he talks about the value of it. So I wanna show a short clip of what the value of play in our lives. Heard this morning, JPL's an incredible place. They have located two consultants, Frank Wilson and Nate Johnson, who, have, who are, Frank Wilson's a neurologist, Nate Johnson is a mechanic. He taught uh, mechanics in a high school in Long Beach and found that his students were no longer able to solve problems. And he tried to figure out why, and he came to the conclusion quite on his own that the students who could no longer solve problems such as fixed cars hadn't worked with their hands. Frank Wilson had written a book called The Hand. They got together, JPL hired them. Now JPL and NASA and Boeing, before they will hire a research and development problem solver, even if they're summa cum laude from Harvard or Caltech, if they haven't fixed cars, haven't done stuff with their hands early in life, played with their hands, they can't problem solve as well. So play is practical and it's very important. Now one of the things about play is that it is born by curiosity and exploration. <clears throat> but it has to be safe exploration. This happens to be okay. He's an anatomically interested little boy, and that's his mom. Other situations wouldn't be quite so good, but curiosity, exploration are part of the play scene. If you want to belong, you need social play. And social play is part of what we're about here today and is a byproduct of the play scene. So I love that clip because it talks in there, he talks about the example of <clears throat> exploration and investigation. And I think it's such an example of how we approach spirituality, how we approach our own evolution. That in fact, it's not about, if we understand the given is perfection, then how, how can I embody more of that and how can I live for more of that? How can I become less fearful? And, and it's a practice, it's a rigorous practice. That's why so let's say that, that we, we're, we're trapped in fear and so it's not even, I don't even want to look at trying to be uh, vulnerable or to be empathetic. It's much more um, life diminishing than ha having the courage and the willingness to step out and, and examine our lives and have the inquiry. And it doesn't have, it, and it's, it's rigorous work. It takes commitment, but I don't think it has to be painful. And play is part of that. 
when we know that, that you know, scientists now know that if young people don't have the capacity to work with their hands, which connects those neurotransmitters, they're less proficient in solving problems. Isn't that amazing? And, and so it doesn't have to stop when we're children. It can, it can go on throughout our lives. And play is, the opposite of, of play is not work, by the way, Brene Brown said. In the research of, of uh, uh, Dr. Um, Stuart Brown, and there's no relation, the opposite of, of play is not work. The opposite of play, he says, is depression. And so when we lose the capacity for play, when we lose the capacity for joy, you know, for the ability to, to work with our hands in some capacity or to work in our hearts in, in some joyful experience, we start to move into that. We start down that, that slippery slope down into depression. And so play can be so powerful and wonderful. It's spiritual practice. I'm going to share a video with you before we leave today. There's an example of a young man that traveled all over the world and, and choreographed dances with people from all nations. And I don't know how he did it, and I don't know where he found the resources, but it's phenomenal. And there they are playing. They're dancing together. Play is, so this idea of play is time spent without purpose. We don't value that, do we? Time spent without purpose? Oh my gosh, so much to do, so much to get done. And if I, if I, if I rest a little bit, I won't be exhausted, so who will I be? Well, you might be your, your essential self. You might be this beautiful, radiant presence of, and, it, and I don't think any of us, well, a few, I've got a couple of, of uh, people in my life that I know have, have always been really comfortable doing nothing, but they're the rare exception. Okay? What I'm saying is I don't think we, we're going to fall into the trap of this, this uh, uh, efficiency and laziness. I mean, because we equate laziness with this idea. There's a difference between lazy and allowing ourselves to have time without purpose. Number two, something, play is something that you don't want to end. That you enjoy it so much, it's like, man, oh man, I could do this forever. I do it forever. And the third, as Dr. Brown says, the third one is you lose yourself in the activity. We've all done that. You know, for me, one of the things that's alive for me now is, is um, reading. I love to read. I love to explore and the ideas. And every once in a while, I get to read something I don't have to read, which is really a joy. Because I've got to stay at least one step ahead of you guys, or I'm hooped for the next Sunday. So <laughs> just telling you, there's a little bit of work and preparation that goes into this. But so do you have play in your life? Do you have an area where you just do nothing without purpose? And don't blame yourself and shame yourself because you're not busy, because the way you were domesticated means that you're, you have no value. And you have something that you don't want to end. For all of us, we need that. And, you, and lose ourselves in an activity. And so here's the other thing. We get to model this for our children. If you are blessed with having kids or grandkids in your life, oh my gosh, and you see them going crazy, like if you really want to, go on uh, TED and see this Stuart Brown, Play is More Than Fun. It's about a half hour and it's amazing. He talks about what they've found and the interaction and how important it is and how, and they show all these different animals there that come into, they, they play together. I mean, a grizzly bear and a, and a husky, I mean, a uh, polar bear and a husky. And it looks like there's going to be a confrontation. You know, the dog looks like food to the bear and all of a sudden they're playing. And he said, you can tell the language. And they play in a way that when one pins the other one down, he'll let the other one up, and then they chase each other. So it's, it's not competition. It's play. That's fascinating to watch. All of the species require this. It's brilliant work by this uh, Dr. Uh, Stuart Brown. So perhaps some suggestions. Perhaps we stop the following. Number one, here's my project, and I'll be worthy of love when I'm done. 
As soon as I get this done, then I'll be, then I'll be feeling good about myself. Then I'm deserving. What, what makes you not deserving right now? And still get it done. Because then your driver becomes different. You know, then it's not, for me, it's not about, you know, get up and, and fill, fill this space with 25 or 30 minutes of content. Because that's, that's that task sort of thing. But it's about working in, in tandem with this infinite intelligence and saying, what is inspiring and what adds value to people? What can, what can we collaborate in here and, and share with people in a way that, that helps uh, dissolve some of those barriers of aliveness? So here's my project. I'll be worthy of love when I'm done or I'll rest when I'm done. I'll sleep when I'm done. Anybody ever said that? I got news for you. You're never done. That's just a trigger for exhaustion. I'm never done. Or I'll feel successful when I meet the right, when I get the promotion, when I find the right guy, when I find the right girl, when my kids move out of town. When my kids finally move out of the basement. I'll feel successful when I, give me a good one, come on. Which one are you working with? Lose weight, there you go. Yeah, then I'll be deserving of love, and I'll, well, then I'm really going to attract the right person. Okay. And she talks about that at length. We'll talk about it more next week. But she talks at length about that, how we set the perfection up, okay, and so here's my goal with my, my weight plan, my food plan. And then we, and it stays right in our heads, and there's never any momentum to go there. And so what happens to us? We sit there, and we shame and loathe ourselves. Because nothing's happening. Is there a different way we can manage our interior? I think so. Because then it's not about, see, then it's not a perfect example. Then it's not about the perfection of the goal. It's about momentum and progress. And then it's not, oh man, I gotta be there in six months because I've got the, I got the high school class reunion coming and I gotta lose 140 pounds in six months. <laughs> okay? Whatever it may be. It's just simply, you know what? I'm committed to honoring and taking care of my physical form because in this physical form, I get to do so many amazing things. And I'm gonna work every day in the direction of greater health and greater strength and greater clarity. And I'm gonna build it step by step, moment by moment. I'm gonna work with my body all those things, you see? But then the driver is about quality of life. It's about being alive and, 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 and being able to enjoy this beautiful world. It's a whole different thing rather than needing to look like something because something is gonna happen in our lives or that we need the promotion to value ourselves. Or I'll no, I'll no longer use exhaustion as a status symbol. I'm a workaholic. Workaholic is a very popular and socially acceptable behavior. I no longer use being busy as being important. Well, if I'm busy, I'm important. Everybody needs me. Okay. Or productivity as being important. Same thing. But productivity is about, one is busyness, one is about getting something done, and then I'll be important, if you know what I mean. They're the subtleties of it. But all of these, so maybe we stop doing these. If you got all of them going, maybe one. Maybe unravel one. Just say, geez, I'm going to work in that area. I don't have to fix them all right now. I'm not giving you this thing. You know, come back next week, have these mastered, and I'll give you six more to run out there and live your life by. But it's really about, it's really about understanding where we are, doing the inquiry. That little boy pulling his mom's skirt aside, it's really about that being inquisitive. Wow, where did that come from? Where does this pattern show up? Who gave me this? Why do I live my life like this? Why do I only allow so much good into my life? 
How come, how come every guy that shows up in my life, or every girl shows up in my, my life seems to have the same patterns? What's wrong with these people? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Anybody ever had that experience before? Yeah. You know, when, when I, I, went through, I went through a divorce a number of years ago, and then after a period of time, and I went and got all the help I could because I thought, man, I don't want to ever have this experience again. And so after about a year, I began dating again, and everybody that I brought into my experience was sort of an exact replica of my first wife. And I thought, man, oh man, I'm, I'm doomed. <laughs> She's a lovely person, believe me, a lovely, lovely person, and, and I love her dearly and mother of our two children. But the point was, is what I had to do was my own work in my own interior to put down what it was that was, was a magnet for that, that energy. And I realized that, oh man, the person responsible for this is me. But I didn't slide into blame and shame, but I needed to sit down with someone that could unravel some of that for me. And so I'm I'm just so grateful. You know, after a bit of time, didn't take forever, but it took a bit of time, I got a perspective on it. And what I started doing was saying no to that, to that energy. I said, no, I don't want to do that again. And I could see it coming. And And once I began saying no in a way that was loving and caring, other things opened up. But that was work. I had to pay attention. Because otherwise I would slide right back into what I knew, which was what I was in consciousness. So saying no was really, really powerful and important. So I want to show you a video of uh, a young man that I talked about a little bit ago. And he has gone out on the planet and, he, and he's, he's created this amazing, it's about five minutes, but it is incredible, this idea of connecting with people, of going and, and having a dream and a vision. So I want to share this with you, and then I'll speak about it a little bit at the end of this, but it's really around play. It's really about movement as, as grown people and how we limit that capacity at times. <laughs>
Beautiful. So maybe, you know, maybe what will bring world peace is we all get together as countries and dance together. Maybe that's a language we can all understand. Maybe it is more play and less thinking and judging. Because really, at the end of the day, if we, if we loathe ourselves and we judge ourselves and we blame ourselves, what do we have in our toolbox in terms of relationship with one another? And so, you know, the teacher Jesus said it so beautifully. It is not I but the Father within to do with the work. He was talking about that divine presence, that principle of life. And it responds to everything we impress upon it with our thought and our being. And so the ways, the small ways that we can loose our grip to, to these strategies that don't work but continue to perpetuate the struggle, I think we bless ourselves, one another, and the world. And I love this video. It just speaks volumes to how connected we are that all of us want to play. All of us love to dance and to sing and to move. And, and wherever, I mean, he was in North, North Korea. I don't know how he did all this and how long it took him. You know, for a five-minute video that's online for free, it's like, okay, God bless you, man. But it's, that's his vision and to share it with us and to take that into our hearts and understand that if we're not playing enough, we can, we can do a better job of that. And so how about this, this last slide? I, I, I wrote this inspired by what my research brought to me this week, but over the next several years, rather than let's get it fun, fast, and easy, over the next several years, I'm gonna rest, I'm gonna play, and create something of value, whatever it is. And I'm gonna to dive into the richness of progress and improve, not about getting to perfection, but simply moving in a direction to the best of my ability. I'm gonna be more wholehearted. I'm gonna practice being vulnerable and more courageous around things that make me uncomfortable. And that's hard for me as well. There are conversations I don't like having, but I know I've got to pull the courage up and have those conversations at times. And I understand this journey will require time and effort, perhaps even several years. But you're probably all going to live a few more years anyway. And so why not set this, this as part of the, the direction and the course that we take and put down those things that don't allow us to step out in the world in willingness and courage. Blessings, thank you so much. See you next week. <laughs>